Colossians chapter 2, again, is where we turn this morning for a brief word from the Apostle Paul. I think his statement here, um, on the face of it, seems rather simple, and yet the implications of it are profound and life-altering, life-changing, how he says to us here in this wonderful passage. He has been talking, of course, in this Colossian letter, the letter to the church in Colossae in Asia Minor, sanctifying, honoring, celebrating the supremacy of Christ, his sovereignty in all things, his magnificence over all creation and over the new creation, his church, his body, which is the church. And Paul says, you guys need to make sure that your doctrine, your the faith that you believe is sound, but also you need to remain steadfast in that faith. Don't be turned aside to the right or to the left in terms of what false teachers are saying you ought to pay attention to or you ought to be doing in your life. Make sure that you are steadfast in your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He focuses on that here in this passage. But he says, you guys need to realize that I have a great burden for you, for you people. You, you in Colossae and in other places that haven't seen me, I have a great concern that you would have spiritual progress, that you would grow and mature in Christ. Let me read for us beginning at verse 1 of Colossians 2 and, and uh, verse through verse uh, 7, I think I have for us on the, on the screen here. Beginning at verse 1, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all uh, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent in the body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. We've looked at this passage up through verse 5. Last time we looked at the discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ is what he was after. And then he reminds, he says, okay, you people, listen to me. Listen. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You've received him, so walk in him. There's a there's a combination, as Paul does so many times in his letters, he he spends so much time talking about who we are in Christ, what we call in grammatical terms the indicatives, or just the, the statements of fact of who we are in Christ, our identity, who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and then the consequence of that, the imperatives or the commands that come as a result. Here we have that in one verse. We have the indicative. We have the statement of fact, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, the imperative then, walk in him, continue to walk in him, live your life all for his sake. He says this, therefore, he says, look, these, there, there's an implication upon those who name the name of Christ. It's not just, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian. Well, that's good. What does that mean for you? Well, it means certain things that we believe. It means certain things that we do and the certain things that we don't do. But it starts with what do we believe? And it's not even about us. It's about Christ. This whole book of or letter of Colossians is about the centrality of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the glories of Christ, the the importance of us. And if you read the the parallel uh, book or epistle letter, Ephesians, you see all over it this phrase, this little brief phrase, and it's here in this verse as well. 
in him or in Christ or in Jesus. Usually it's in him or in Christ. That is where it starts. That's where it proceeds. That's where it ends, in Christ. And he says, therefore, this implication, I want you to be firm and steadfast in your faith. And therefore, because of that faith you have in Christ, how ought you, to, how ought you to walk? How ought you con to conduct your daily lives? Now, in this course or this uh, uh, progress of this letter to the Colossian church, he's mainly focusing on the statements of fact. He has an imperative here, of course, uh, a command or an implication of these truths. And yet, it's not until we get to chapter 3 that he will have all kinds of imperatives, commands for us. But it's not something that is just a moralistic, you know, do this, do this, don't do that separate from Christ, it, that somehow because we do these things or don't do certain other things, that that makes us acceptable to God. We're accepted before God because of our faith in Christ Jesus himself. That faith then produces these good works. Ephesians 2.10, right, says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. But wait a minute. To back up a couple of verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. So there's grace that brings us into this whole situation now where we're accepted, we are uh, brought in before the beloved, and now there are implications. Okay, now you're in. You can't get out. Not that we would want to. Why would you run away from Christ? It's a beautiful passage in John chapter 6, I think it is. Jesus had been telling, and we'll look at this passage a little bit later, actually. Jesus had said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Now, that kind of turned off some followers. Uh, they said, what do you mean, eat your flesh and drink your blood? That's kind of weird. And Jesus asked his own 12 disciples, are you also going to leave me? Because many other the, you know, disciples, followers of Jesus did leave. And Peter, one of those good attaboy kind of moments for Peter. Where where should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There's no other option. It's not like, you know, if you can't breathe air, what are you going to breathe? Well, we need air. We don't need to seek out anything different. If air is what we need, it, why would we seek out something different from Christ? We're not going to somehow say, well, you know, thank you, God, for what you're doing, but I think I'll go over here and, and meet my need, my spiritual need for forgiveness from God Almighty in another way. There is no other way. There is one way, and that is a sufficient way. And it's not a hard way. Confess your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. What a joy is, is that? What a, a statement of fact. And yet, because of that, that puts us in this position or condition of being righteous before God. And now we want to prove that in the way that we live, the way that we, as he says here, to walk in Christ. He is everything. Christ is everything. He is the one. He's the means by which we come into this this faith. He is the means by which we are sustained through it. He is even even in heaven praying for us. He's uh, at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. He sent His Spirit, His own Spirit, to us, into us, so that we can uh, live a different life, not walking according to the flesh, but walking according to the Spirit. There are implications about our Christianity. We can't just claim to, to know Christ. Don't we know so many people in our world who say, I'm a Christian? Okay, well, tell me about what who Jesus is. Tell me how you live your life or just watch their life. How do they live their life? Does that testify of Christ? Does that glorify him? Does that honor him? Does that, we'll see an example that we should walk, we should follow his example. Okay, the way that you're doing that thing and the way you're talking to this person. Can I see Christ doing that? Would 
would how how much does that reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? There are implications. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, this idea of receiving, we often talk about that. You know, somebody prayed to receive Christ. Well, that's wonderful. What does that mean? There are at least two different ways to, to understand this word, and, and, and there's a further implication on, on one of these things. Uh, to receive is uh, can be taken intellectually, to receive a truth, to receive or to take into or to accept a, a truth, uh, information that's being uh, presented by somebody else. It could be, uh, has to do with spe- specifically with tradition or, or teaching that is handed down from one person to another, sometimes by oral tradition or uh, by uh, uh, preaching, by uh, books, by whatever it might be. And the Pharisees and those religious people back in Jesus' day were especially given to the things that they had received from their fathers, traditions uh, of men, traditions of the elders that they had received, passed down from generation to generation. And that is the issue that Jesus had. He says, you have, you're so devoted to these traditions of men that you're willing to set aside the tradition or the commandment of God. Um, you ought to rethink that approach to life, wanting to affirm and, and gain the approval of men to the detriment of God's approval of you. You're not living for the praise of God. You're living for the praise of men. Well, when you get the praise of men, does that satisfy you? What about when they turn on you, that you don't somehow do the things that they celebrate and they don't? you don't speak the things that they teach and somehow your life is contrary to the world? What's the world going to do? Comfort you, correct you lovingly? They're going to cast you out. They're going to hate you. They're going to call you names and, and maybe even kill you. Are we so willing to sacrifice the commandment of the Lord in order to somehow please men, to somehow follow the traditions of men? I hope not. It says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, we received him both intellectually in this way and in another way I'll mention here in a moment. But this intellectual ascent, this understanding of truth is so important. Paul, the apostle, in another letter to the Corinthian church, he says in uh, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. So it's this gospel that Paul received, this message of the gospel that Paul received from God. He makes that more, more clear in in Galatians uh, chapter 1, he says, I didn't receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the origin of this truth or this teaching is important. It's not the tradition of men. It's the teaching of God himself, the revelation of God. And he says, we have received these things, and so I'm preaching these, I'm passing these on to you. And he says, I have delivered, verse 3 of First Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as first... As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he arose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to so and so and such and such all the way down. And to me, as one untimely born, uh, you know, who is the least to the apostles, not even fit to be called an apostle, for I persecuted the church of God. I mean, wow, Paul had this this issue. But he says, I received it from the Lord and I'm passing it on to you. Isn't that what Second Timothy 2 and verse 2 says? Things which you've received... In the presence of many um, witnesses, you entrust to 
uh, faithful men so they can teach others also. I've just butchered that thing. But it says, things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's that transmission, that responsibility of passing this truth along. The Thessalonian church, Paul identified in so many different positive ways. You received the word of God, which you heard from us, but you didn't accept it just as the word of men which, I mean, it's coming from men, so did we just make it up? But you received it as it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. There is an intellectual element of receiving Christ. It's not just an emotional thing. When we ask a child or or, uh, somebody to to receive Christ, it's not just a, uh, yeah, I'll I'll take you or I'll I'll choose you. You have to believe certain things about him. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one who died for our sins. He lived a holy life. He's coming again. These kinds of truths are so important for us to consider as we want to put flesh on this idea of receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. Receiving him has that idea then of learning and uh, accepting this tradition. Uh, this, Lest we think oh, tradition is bad, well, human tradition, tradition of men is, is bad. It can lead you astray, but there are traditions that are handed down from us, or to us rather, from uh, the apostles, from the prophets. Remember Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Do you remember back, this has been years ago now, Luke chapter 1, we studied studied the gospel of Luke, but at the beginning verses there of that gospel, that account of the Lord Jesus' earthly life, Luke said, lots of folks have said about writing an account or a, a gospel uh, of the things that have been accomplished among us. And it says in verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. So we have an eyewitness testimony of Christ's life. This isn't just hearsay. It's not just you know hundreds of years later, some person's reflections on this person, Jesus of Nazareth. No, we had eyewitness testimony and they wrote down their stories, their, their, their experiences with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, we have studied, Luke says, studied these very carefully and want to present in a logical order, not necessarily chronological, but a logical order, this man, Jesus, his life. And so there's this tradition, this reception of truth that is passed down. There were the decrees that were decided by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. Acts 15 and then in chapter 16 talks about uh, Paul and, and Barnabas going out to teach these things or mention these things to the church churches around uh, Romans 6, wonderful passage uh, regarding the, the, our freedom from sin. Paul says, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching, that tradition, that approach, that deposit that has been given to the next generation to carry forward and, and, and keep carrying it forward until Christ returns. Paul says, I didn't teach anything that I just received or made up my own self or learned in my own brilliant mind. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Whatever I've been, well, to a certain degree, whatever I've received from the Lord, there are certain, certain, certain things that he was not able to tell, right? Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 
12 is it he talked about going to the third heaven and you know there are certain things i you know can't even talk about from that experience but the things that have been he is able to reveal he says you became obedient to that stuff you received these things you have believed these things and you received that word of god and it performs its wonderful work the traditions of men we ought not to hold or if we do hold them we hold them very loosely we say okay maybe uh why do we meet on a sunday morning well that's a tradition uh there was a tradition of meeting on a saturday night or a saturday uh for a variety of reasons you remember back in acts 20 when paul was with the church and he was there and he prolonged his words until past midnight and the guy fell asleep in the windowsill and fell out and they picked him up dead whoa that was bad but they met on a sunday or saturday night why did they do that? Part of it's because it was the going out of the Sabbath. It's the beginning of the first day of the week. And they were meeting. A lot of them were slaves. And so they had to go to work the next morning. And so this was a good time to meet. Paul elsewhere says, on the first day of the week, is that First Corinthians? Uh, or uh, where does he say? First, Second Corinthians 8 and 9. He talks about the offering that the Corinthian church was gathering for the saints in Jerusalem. He says, when you gather on the first day of the week, well, the first day of the week is Sunday, today. It's the Lord's Day, John says in, in Revelation chapter 1. On the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit. And so why do we celebrate? Why do we gather as a church on a Sunday? Well, we have tradition to do it that way. Some churches, and I was confused by this for a long time, some churches meet on the, the Sabbath day. Well, they call it the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath day is, was yesterday. It's the seventh day. Shabbat, Sabbath, is a Saturday. Well, we have the Christian Sabbath on a Sunday. And that confused me for a long time until I realized, oh, there's a misunderstanding about Sabbath. That, okay, the re Anyway, I won't get into all that. The point is traditions can help us to, to understand the truth of Scripture, but they can also lead us astray. They can be an unstable footing for our lives to say, well, we celebrate this or we do it this way. Why do you do it that way? We should be able to say, because the Bible says, chapter and verse, this is what it says, and it clearly says this, that we should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we should be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, that we should gather together as a church, that we should pray without ceasing, we should be thankful in all circumstances, these kinds of things. We can go to chapter and verse for us to say, well, you ought to wear a tie to a church meeting or a, a scarf. Or, yeah, there's not... There's not that clear teaching. The point is, we want to make sure that we have received the truth, the, the, the substantive, foundational, fundamental truths, and we hold to those things. The other things we hold loosely. Now, he says here, or this idea of receiving has that intellectual component to it, but it also has, it can have a relational component to receive someone, to receive or to accept the presence of uh, someone with uh, cordiality or friendliness or love. Um, even in, ter in terms of taking a wife, the first time we see this word, we see it in Matthew chapter 1, when Joseph is being encouraged, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, to take her, to receive her to yourself, a personal relational involvement with your wife with this woman, Mary. Do not be afraid. And thankfully, I mean, sometimes we we downplay the role that Joseph had in this whole wonderful narrative of nativity, but he was obedient to a heavenly vision, to an angel, and it could have gotten him in trouble. He's going to marry this woman that has a child out of, I mean, they weren't married at the time. They had the engagement and all that kind of stuff. But 
it, he was going out on a limb to obey this, this angelic dream even, but he obeyed. He took Mary as his wife. This idea of receiving relationally comes to play also in John chapter 1, when the word became flesh and, and so forth. It says, he came to his own, John 1, 11, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. They did not accept him and love him and welcome him into their, into their homes, into their lives. They did not receive him. And notice the connection between a, 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 a relational component of, of accepting, uh, drawing near to somebody, but also going back to that intellectual idea of believing certain things. Uh, John 1, 12 says, as many as did receive him, Okay, so we're talking about those who did, Christians, those who would trust Christ. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So receiving Christ is connected in a parallel way with believing in him, trusting him, uh, what he says, what he's done. And these were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. God is the one who opens our hearts to receive, which is to say to believe and to accept the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There's one other aspect I just want to bring in because that's our hope. John 14, Jesus is giving his last words to his disciples in the upper room, and he says, I'm going to be taken away and all these things. And he says in verse 3, John 14, 3, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There is that great expectation and hope that we are accepted them, beloved, but he's going to come back for us. He wants to be with us. He wants to have that relational component, which we've seen throughout Scripture. I will be their God. They'll be my people. I will dwell among them. It's God's desire to be among his people. Well, he says, we're going to revisit this idea of what does it mean then to receive Christ intellectually and relationally. We'll consider that more important, more uh, fully in just a moment. But he says here, Christ Jesus the Lord. This is the only time, one of two places, where this compound statement is used, Christ Jesus the Lord. And he, he brings another, maybe a point of confusion that we have in our lives and our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, where uh, what is his name, after all? His, his, we, we read about Simon, who is called Peter, his surname being Peter. Well, so is Christ Jesus' last name? Is that his surname, his family name, Christ? Uh, Lord is a title, obviously, because we talk about that, even though in most of our translations, when we see the name of, of God in the Old Testament, it's translated Lord with the weird small caps situation. His name is Yahweh. That's his name. He has lots of titles, Lord, uh, Adonai, God, He ha uh, Almighty, um, uh, the, the, the Lord of the armies, the commander of the armies, all these different titles. Here we have his name. Jesus is his name. Christ and Lord are not names. They're, they're titles. They're offices. But his name is Jesus. And so what Paul is doing here, in a, in a, to various uh, extents, we could belabor the point too much perhaps, but he is focusing on several aspects of this man, Jesus. He's focusing on his humanity. He is Jesus. He's the son of Mary, son of Joseph. He's the son of David. He is the one who, as John said, the, uh, became flesh and dwelt among us. He is somebody who actually lived on earth. He is what we might refer to as the historical Jesus, even though that has some other connotations, uh, downplaying his, his supernatural um, identity. And yet we emphasize Jesus lived. 
Jesus was a man born into this world, as Galatians 4 says, born at just the right time to those who were under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. But he came, he lived, he had parents, he, has, he, he lived a, a, a human life, which is to say he was born, he grew up as a toddler, he became a bar mitzvah, the son of the commandment, he became an adult, he had a vocation, right? He was a carpenter after his father, Joseph, uh, was a worker of you know, all kinds of things, stone and wood and whatever else might be. But then he was tempted in every which way as we were, yet without sin. He lived. He cried, right? When Lazarus died, he wept. When he uh, was in, in, the, in the boat and going across the Sea of Galilee, he fell asleep. He was tired. He was exhausted. He was thirsty. He said, I'm, I thirst from the cross. Um, he ate food. I mean, just emphasizing humanity. Jesus was human. And is human. He's always the God-man, the one in the flesh. But mentioning his name, Jesus, and not just somehow elevating himself, elevating this reference to Christ the Lord, which kind of brings it out of our relate. I mean, outside of our comfort zone, or at least outside of things that we can associate with Christ the Lord. Wow, that's that's pretty heady stuff. And and yet he says Jesus, this Jesus. And Peter even said in Acts 2, this, Pete, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he died. Jesus died. And his body was buried in a tomb. Jesus is human. Paul emphasizes this aspect, that he is this man, Jesus. Then he emphasizes these two titles that are associated with it. Christ, he says, and it's, we see in Scripture uh, sometimes Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, it's the same thing, but Christ is not his last name. Uh, it's, it's just a title, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He is that one who fulfills these, these statements. You know, as you look at it in Scripture, there isn't a whole lot of mention of this idea of Messiah in the Scriptures, uh, in the Old Testament specifically, but where it does mention it, wow, wow. When it talks about the Messiah, the anointed one, it means anointed one. It means to be the one who has been anointed. Anointing means to, to pour oil on the head, which we think, why, why are you doing that to me? Get away from me. No, that was a mercy. That was an honor. Uh, it was a, a time of refreshing. It was a time of, of um, even separation for God. Now, I am anointed with oil, and therefore I have a specific role to fulfill. This idea of a anointed one or a, a messiah, a messianic figure. You know, the first time we see it referenced, it has to do with priests. You think, wait a minute, what? They're anointed messianic priests? Well, they're anointed priests, these who are separated as unto God for the work in the, in the at that point, the tabernacle, soon to be the temple. They have been anointed for a special purpose. They are holy. In fact, they have special garments. They're not supposed to wear out in the camp. They're supposed to wear those only when they come in to work at the tabernacle because they've been anointed. And all these other furniture items and, and uh, the, the utensils that are in it, they've been anointed with oil, sometimes anointed with blood because of the purification that that symbolizes. So we have this idea of priest, anointed priest. You know, the prophets were also called anointed ones. Psalm 105 verse 15 says, do not touch my anointed ones and do not do my prophets no harm. So the prophets are those who have been anointed by God, set apart for his purposes, uh, sanctified for these uh, good works. Okay, you, you, as Vodi would say, are you smelling what I'm stepping in? Because there's one more example. 
priest, prophet, and king. Kings are those who are anointed. In fact, that's where we think of it most often. Saul is the one who was anointed. In fact, uh, David is so taken with us that this idea. He said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed one. I mean, there was, I mean, Saul was after David to kill him, and David could have retaliated in so many different ways, could have, could have taken Saul out, and yet he says, I'm not going to do that. Let God judge him. Let God bring him for his evil uh, unto judgment. Uh, when Samuel was, the prophet Samuel was uh, appointed to anoint a replacement king or the successor of Saul, he went to the house of Jesse, remember? And all the, the sons of Jesse came before him. And here's this mighty strapping big guy, Eliav, who came. And, and Samuel said, surely this, the Lord's anointed stands before me. Mm -mm. Nope, it's not him. David, the guy, the youngest, out watching his father's sheep, he is the one. And he's the one who was anointed. And it, so many times David is mentioned as the anointed one. And the sons of David are mentioned as the anointed ones. God to... to uh, God fulfills his promise to David and to his descendants, this idea of anointing. But we see more specifically, more fully in this regard, that this idea of king, this idea of ruler or sovereign is applied to somebody yet coming, a descendant of David, yes. But he is one mentioned in Daniel chapter 9 when Messiah the prince comes. And then it mentions again, Messiah the prince or Messiah. When that Messiah comes, it's something yet future from Daniel's time. Daniel, chronologically speaking, is hundreds of years after David. So, okay, David and Saul and all those guys were, were anointed. They were messiahs. Even Cyrus is mentioned as an as a, uh, anointed one, separated into God for a specific purpose. But there is going to be a messiah yet coming, messiah the prince, and he will do certain things. He'll be cut off and, and that kind of thing. Psalm 2 also is mentioned, I mean, big time mentioned about uh, the, the kings of the earth have taken their stand against the Lord and his Messiah, his anointed one. And it goes on to talk about uh, um, that, that this Messiah is not just somebody. He is established as ruler in Jerusalem. He's the king. All these ideas of priest, prophet, king come together in the person of Jesus Christ. He is that one who represents us to God and God to us. He is that mediator. First Timothy 2 says he's the mediator between God and man. He is the one who speaks God's word to us. Hebrews 1 says we had, you know, prophets spoke to our fathers in many portions in many ways, but in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son or by his son. He is the one who communicates God to man such that Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Whoa. Wow. Well, that's breathtaking. And then for him to say he's king. Well, he is king. He's king of everything. He is king of the whole earth. And yet was not treated that way when he first came. But there's a time coming when he will come as king of kings and lord of lords in fulfillment of the promise that God made to David, his servant, that there would be a son. Not that He would not fail to have a son ruling on the throne of of David over his people. This idea then, Jesus is that Christ. He is that one who fulfills these promises that God made to his people. He is the one also here identified as Lord. So when we, we believe, we receive Jesus Christ as Lord or receive Jesus, well, what do you believe about him? He lived, lived a holy life, he fulfilled God's commands, he fulfilled God's promises. He is Messiah. He's also Lord. And not like uh, 
an accessory kind of a title or, or something. Oh yeah, that's true of him too. You know, he's tallest and the fairest. No, he, he, it, all these things are combined in him beautifully, wonderfully, perfectly uh, congealed together in this, this person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is Lord. He is the one who is, in other words, sovereign. He is the master. He is the one who is over all things, which we saw back in chapter one. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the head of all creation. He's, he's over everything and all the, all the created beings like angels and, and rulers and all that kind of stuff. But there's one other aspect of his supremacy, of his sovereignty, of his rule and reign, and that means over me. We, we may like to say Jesus is wonderful. He's Messiah and everything. He is Lord of all that stuff out there. Is he Lord of you? Have you bowed your knee to him? There's going to be a time coming for those who are in Christ or those who are not in Christ when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is master. He is the sovereign. He's the one that needs to be obeyed. His word goes. He is the one to whom we will give an account. He is the one that has the authority to judge. We don't want to be on the bad side. We don't want to be on the judgment side of his of his. Uh, you know, the condemnation side of his judgment. We want to be, having been judged, we recognize, Jesus, you died in my place. You're the one who, who bought me uh, and, and sanctified me. You're the one who's glorifying me or will glorify me. You're the one who sealed my salvation. You are the one whom I lived for. Your commandments were life to me. I found light and life in your truth. To receive Christ Jesus the Lord is then to acknowledge all these things and wonderfully acknowledge them. Say, wow, th- we can never get to the bottom of what Jesus is and what he's done. Remember John, the end of John's gospel, almost the end, chapter 20, he says, all sorts of other things Jesus did on earth, but we could, you know, I wrote everything down. The whole world wouldn't contain the books that could be written. But what I have written down That's what you need to believe. I've written these things down so that you may know, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you'll have life in his name. It's an important thing, this thing about Jesus. Having received Christ Jesus the Lord, it's not that, hey, you you were born into a good family, you had a good upbringing, middle class, parents, all this kind of stuff. Walk in that way. You know, just fulfill your calling in that Anything less than being in Christ is really not adequate enough. For us to say, I've, I've lived a good life, I did this, I didn't do that. I'm, no, have you received Christ Jesus the Lord? That is the issue. You know, how much you gave to this, that, and the other thing, or, or you know, how you, all, whatever things that we could think of, nothing compares to this necessity of trusting Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, three implications, and we'll be done. Three implications of this, that when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we affirm that idea of an intellectual learning about him, that we receive him, the truths about him, who he is, perfectly, truly, as he's revealed in scripture, not just in the gospels, but in the whole, Genesis through Revelation, he is revealed from page to page, he is there. He wants us to understand those things, but then that second component of receiving Christ is to, to relate to him, to want to have a fellowship with him, to have a friendship with him. And so this devotion, the personal devotion to the man, Jesus, is what he expects. It's no wonder why the church is called the bride of Christ. You know, you talk about romantic love. 
between a husband and a wife or a bride and a bridegroom. I mean, there, there's an affinity, there's an affection, there's a desire to be together. And sometimes we don't see that in the church. We don't see that, that wide-eyed, uh, romantic love. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. He gave himself for us. He lives. He is perfect. He is uh, absolutely, um, I was going to say the word adorable, and that kind of just minimizes it. He is absolutely lovely. There's nothing, there's no fault in him. And for us to say, yeah, he's really nice, and we go off to this other thing. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? If you love him, you'll do three things, at least these three things. You'll call upon him. You'll call upon him. I don't have his number. Well, you don't need his number. You can call upon him. Wherever you are, call upon. Cry out to him. Ask him for help. There's, there's a very short prayer in Scripture uh, that you can use any time. You want to write this down? Help, Lord. That is a good, solid prayer because it acknowledges we need, and he's able to supply the need. He is that Savior, that helper. Joel chapter 2. This verse is, verse 33, 32 rather, is quoted so many times in the New Testament. And it says in, in Joel, he says, whoever calls in the name of Yahweh will be saved. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But Yahweh is his name. And then Peter quotes that in Acts 2. He says it again in Acts 2, 38. He says, repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, wait a minute. It said, he was quoting Joel 2, 32, which says, call in the name of Yahweh. So, excuse me, Peter, I'm going to go call on the name of Yahweh. He says, believe on and, and call on the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. He is Yahweh. He is the one who is able to save you. Romans 8, or excuse me, Romans 10 has a very similar statement. You know this about, um, about the preacher and the gospel, and if you believe in your heart, uh, you'll be saved, confess with your mouth, and all this kind of stuff. Well, what is this? This is calling on the name of the Lord. Whoever, because he says in verse 13, he quotes this, the passage from Joel 2, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he says, you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised from the dead, and he'll be saved. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, he says. So we call on him. We believe in him. We recognize that he is the one that we have to do. In fact, that's the second idea. We call upon him. We believe in him. John 1, again, he says, as many as received him to those who believed in his name. Or John three eighteen, uh, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the, Lord, of the only begotten Son of God. And other verses we could look at there. But all these things really come down to this third aspect. And there are many more aspects of how we relate, how we love, how we adore the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you love him? Do you love him? Scripture says, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, and Jesus affirms this as the greatest of all commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and in the Deuteronomy passage, all your might. Uh, gospel adds... Um, all your strength, all your love, yeah, and and just it's not like there are only three components of our of our lives that need to love Him, and other aspects don't have to love Him. No, everything that you are, love God Himself. This wonderful passage, re restatement of that passage, of that commandment in Deuteronomy six is Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy ten to fear God, to walk in his ways, to love him, serve him with all your heart and soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes today, which I'm commanding you today for good. This is what it means to receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, to love him, to fear him, to walk in his ways, to, to serve him, to keep his commandments. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, 
That's good enough for me. Just say that you love me. No, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And I'll just keep his word like we have a lot of Bibles on our shelves. But keep as in guard and protect and listen to and obey and do his word. He will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. There is this wonderful idea. We receive Christ and yet Christ receives us and the father receives us not just as you know servants to serve in his wonderful heavenly mansion, but those who will, as the prodigal son, come on in. He's he come. He's you know he's my son. I'm so proud of him. He's come back. He's he's he's. There's no estrangement, no um, condemnation, no casting away. But do you love him? Ephesians six verse twenty four says, "Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love." It can't be changed or fashioned or somehow lessened. It is something that is intense. It's a burning desire to to know more about God, uh, to know more about uh, what He has done for us. It is an incorruptible love. And finally, Second Timothy uh, chapter four, Peter's Paul rather says, "I know that I'm almost dead." This is his second Roman imprisonment. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. There's a laid up for me in the crown of righteousness, which the Lord Jesus, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you long for that? Do you, do you long for the day when he will come back for you? Now, we may meet him in the air. We may die before he comes. But do you, do you long for that day when even that is joy? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with all my loved people, the pets that I lost all those years ago, you know, heaven's going to be really cool. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do you, is that your desire? Is that your expectation? Is that what we're after? As you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Well, there are whole implications on that to walk in him, which we'll consider more in, in, um, in chapter three. But We'll look at that little phrase next week as we go into verse 7. Love the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive him. Draw near to him. Call upon him. Believe all the things that are written about him. He is your only hope. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. What joy is ours to believe and to have that confidence that your word is true from the beginning. It is settled in the heavens. There's nothing that can shake it, nothing that can, you know, any new discoveries or new thoughts that come into our heads that would somehow supplant or displace the authority and supremacy of your word. Please help us to be devoted to it, especially as it tells us, it speaks to us of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that each soul here would be in a right relationship with you, calling upon you, believing in you, loving you, drawing near to you talking about you, reflecting your uh, truth, the reality that we have in Christ. And that's the only reality, really, to be in Christ or to not be in Christ. And that, that's the issue for each person born in this world from Adam and Eve. We pray that you would be the God over all things. Again, the God of reconciliation. We're so thankful for your mercy, your patience, how we know we are a sinful people. And yet you and your mercy have not killed us yet. There's a time coming when judgment will fall and it will fall without impartiality or without partiality. It will be something that is meted out justly and truly. But we're so thankful that Christ is the way to escape from that, that wrath to come. 
We pray again that each person here would trust you wholly and that we would tell others. But it's good, good news. Help us to receive, continue to receive, continually drawing near to the Lord. Receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Pray in his name. Amen. 